0: You're about to hear what the big boss at Nissan has to say. This is AutoLine. Two years ago, Nissan absolutely stunned the automotive industry, announcing that it was pulling up stakes in Los Angeles and moving its headquarters to Tennessee. I suppose that shouldn't have come as too much of a surprise. After all, Nissan built its first American manufacturing facility in Tennessee 25 years ago. Then after working out of temporary offices in Nashville for the last two years, now Nissan's moving into its brand new $100 million headquarters. The first time any car company has moved its headquarters into the southern part of the United States. And that's quite a coup for Tennessee, but with Volkswagen announcing that it too is going to build an assembly plant in Chattanooga. That's why they've got so many dignitaries and politicians at today's dedication. The arrival of the auto industry in Tennessee has transformed our lives. Today, one third of Tennessee's manufacturing jobs are auto jobs. I feel certain that this exceptional new facility will serve as just the right home for Nissan Americans, as will the state of Tennessee. This is a great day for Nissan, it's a great day for Tennessee, and I look forward to the next chapters in our continued partnership. This facility is a visual
1: statement of Nissan itself. With this investment, we deliberately designed this building to reflect our commitment to our employees, to our environment, and to the sustainable growth of Nissan in the Americas.
0: But we're not just here for a building dedication, we're here because I'm going to be sitting down for an exclusive one-on-one interview with Carlos Ghosn, the CEO of Nissan and Renault, talking about the turbulent times the automotive industry is going through. And we'll be doing that right after this. This is AutoLine. Here now is John McElroy. Welcome to my interview right now with Carlos Ghosn, the CEO of Nissan and Renault. It's great to have you here on this program of Autoline. Thank you. Mr. Ghosn, there's a lot going on in the world right now today. Let's start out with the global economy. We see the US probably in recession. Western Europe seems to be slowing down a lot and yet other countries, as you know, are, are just booming, just taking off. What's your outlook? Where are we going from here on a global basis?
1: Well, I think we, we're facing already a anyway in the car market we're facing a clear recession in the United States a clear recession in Europe and a clear recession in Japan so practically all the mature market in the car industry are seeing a recession and the only booming markets are the emerging markets particularly those with plenty of natural resources which are now allowing them to grow independently of what's taking place in the mature market Russia, uh, Brazil, the Middle East Uh, you know, our our bombings. And I think we're going to be facing this situation for a while. Why so? Uh, Well, you know, uh, if you take one factor like uh, price of oil, uh, price of oil practically doubled in a very short period of time. Uh, This is about two trillion dollars changing hands in one year, Mm. taken from the countries consuming oil to the countries producing oil. So you can't expect punctioning by $2 trillion, a lot of economies, without this affecting a little bit consumption.
0: In the booming economies, the, the BRIC countries as we call them, is that enough to offset the downturn in the other mature markets? Well,
1: so far it happened in 2007, even though the mature markets were uh, all in decline or at best stagnating, uh, the emerging markets have made up. Uh, because the uh, total market grew more than 6% in 2007. Uh, but I think in 2008, we're going to see more downside for the car industry in uh, mature market. But still, the demand is growing in a very healthy way in the brick market. So I think, the, the yes, it, we will still have bottom line Grows more moderate in 2008 than in 2007 due to the emerging markets.
0: As you noted, oil prices have just skyrocketed this year. What's your outlook for the price of oil? Do you see it stabilizing, going down, going up? What's your outlook?
1: There is only one certainty about oil price: is we cannot predict it. That's the only one. Now everybody has his own wish, but we're preparing for the worst, and the worst is that price of oil. Will stay at least at the same level than today, which is around one hundred and forty dollars the barrel, and it may go up to two hundred because some, as you know some prediction put it even even higher. so we need to be prepared for it. Well, if it doesn't happen, better for us, mm. but if it happens, at least we'll not be surprised.
0: What do you make of this peak oil theory that global production will peak circa two thousand and twelve? Some people are saying it's already peaked, and then the downward slope, that is the drop in production starts to get alarming around 2015 to 2020. Do you believe in this theory or no?
1: Well, well, you know, there are plenty of theories, and it's very difficult unless you spend a lot of time analyzing yourself or your data to make your own opinion. But something is absolutely certain. If we want to have a more reliable uh, uh, and sustainable mobility, we're just going to have to find other solutions than oil. That's absolutely clear. Because the crisis today, even if it comes down, is going to come back one day or the other. So we better start really having cars being uh, driven and being moved with another kind of fuel than, than oil. That's why we, we're, you know, we're betting on electric car, we're going with hydrogen, that means every single thing has to be done seriously because this crisis, even though, you know, you may say, well, it's going to go, it's going to be much better next
0: year we'll come back. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about some of those solutions, especially your focus on electric vehicles. So why the focus primarily on electric, it seems to be coming out of Nissan now?
1: Well, you know, if you take, uh, you know, we, we, we think that the zero emission cars have a big future, not only because of oil, but also because of the emission. That, you know, at the same time that we're talking about the price of oil, there is a high level today of, uh, you know, understanding that we cannot continue to grow Uh, uh, the cars, the number of cars uh, being driven in the world without harming the environment. So in a certain way we're going to have to find as car manufacturers a solution to this anxiety existing in the world and and that's very important for for, for us. So we have to find a solution with zero emission. So if you combine the fact that you need to rely less on oil and at the same time have a product which is zero emission you have today two solutions uh, that we know. Uh, electric cars mm-hmm. and uh, fuel cell cars. Uh, I think that electric cars are more near-term than fuel cell cars. It doesn't mean that we're not working on fuel cell. We continue to work on fuel cell, and we we have uh, a project already decided to bring electric car on the market, you know, in a relatively short term,
0: 2010, 2011. Mm-hmm. And uh, some people have said, though, it's zero emissions at the tailpipe, or there is no tailpipe on an electric car, but there still are emissions involved. and because coal is such a, a huge fuel used in the generation of electricity that maybe it isn't that great of a step. How, how do you respond to it? Well, I respond
1: uh, to today you can generate emission by producing energy using coal and you're going to generate another source of emission by driving cars. We want to take care at least of one source. You know, okay. you, know uh, you can't say, okay, I'm not going to do anything because even if I solve this problem, there is part of the problem remaining. I say, let's go step by step. Let's already put on the market cars, which do not emit. You're going to have a big chunk of the problem solved. Mm-hmm. And then we can address the, the source, even though there are a lot of sources not emitting CO2, as you know, you can nuclear mm-hmm. power does not emit CO2, mm-hmm. hydroelectric does not emit CO2, uh, you know, uh, using wind or using solar power does not emit CO2, yes, you can use coal or fuel to make electricity, but I think solving already the car as a source of emission is a big step forward.
0: And what about plug-in hybrids? Is maybe an interim? Are are you pushing into that area, too?
1: There are a lot of uh, interim solutions, hybrids, plug-in hybrids, you know, even electric car with range extender. Mm -hmm. I mean, but I think what's very important is that you put on the market a car which is zero emission, whatever the way you use it, whatever the way you use it. You do not leave even the possibility for somebody to emit, Mm -hmm. okay? You get the car, it's zero emission. And then after this, you can add this car, a lot of options, you know, where you can bring some emission. For for me it's very important that we cannot start with a a range extender and gasoline engine to support. You should bring a zero emission product, that's our commitment.
0: And why do you think that uh, electric vehicles near term are a better solution than going with fuel cell vehicles?
1: You know, we have both technologies and, uh, you know, I I can see the maturity of uh, them and the. I think that uh, the maturity of the technology the the cost of the technology um, the acceptance by the market makes electric car a shorter term solution than uh, than uh, Fuel cell, fuel cell are a good solution for the future. It, it's a different. But it needs kind a fr- of
0: an infrastructure to be put in place too. Yeah. Is that another reason why yeah. you're yeah. bullish and, on and EVs? and the cost
1: and the cost of fuel cell is, is much higher than the cost of uh, of electric cars.
0: What about alternative fuels, ethanol, compressed natural gas, sure. or I things mean, like it, that? It, Do you see any chance for that to catch on?
1: I, I don't. I don't think it's going to become a mainstream solution. I think it's, it's going to be a kind of other kind of solution, derivative. Well, ethanol. It depends. How you produce ethanol? You know, you take a country like Brazil, uh, producing ethanol in a way which is very cost-effective and in a certain way not competing uh, against food. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, because Brazil has a lot of land available and there is a lot you know, a uh, disconnection between how much sugarcane you're going to develop for ethanol mm-hmm. and you know, corn and rice and wheat from from the other side. When you are in a situation like this, ethanol is a good solution and, and Brazil in fact is running on ethanol. Mm-hmm. I think Brazil developed its own autonomy uh, by, by developing ethanol. But that may not be the case in many countries mm-hmm. who, who, who do not enjoy the same kind of space availability and. Uh, cost-effectiveness that Brazil has for ethanol. So ethanol is a good solution. I don't think it's going to be a mainstream solution,
0: particularly because it's competing against food. As you well know, Europe has really put a lot of emphasis on diesel. What do you think the diesel prospects are elsewhere in the world?
1: Well, diesel, diesel prospects are growing uh, everywhere, particularly with the clean diesels. That means the diesels with practically no, no, no emission, no particles, nothing at all. Um, some car manufacturers are introducing it in the United States. Uh, you're going to have some diesel introduction in Japan, which have been countries resisting to diesel so far. Uh, the l- percentage of uh, cars with diesel engine in Europe is significant, more than 65% to, to cars out of three, at least in Europe, are today running on, on diesel. So. So it's it's a mainstream technology.
0: Mm-hmm. You put a lot of emphasis on CVTs. In fact, uh, at one point you were saying CVTs were a more logical way to go than even hybrid cars. Has the price of oil changed your calculation in that regard? No, not at all. CVT in
1: some uh, you know driving conditions, which are very common to people. Uh, can uh, save up to 10% of uh, uh, in terms of fuel. So it's a, it's a very, and we are generalizing CBT in our product line up. So I think what we need to do today is, if you have a gasoline engine, or if you have a diesel engine, you need to use every single technology in order to reduce the emission and increase the fuel efficiency.
0: Okay, let's go back to talking a little bit more about the business side of things. You've always talked of having an interest in a US partner. Uh, Where does that stand? One would think that maybe Chrysler is more of a a target for you now. You're cooperating on doing full-size pickup trucks together. Chrysler is going to be getting a small car from you. Is Chrysler the partner that you would like in the US market?
1: No, frankly I I think we we have always made deals, OEM deals. I mean we have the alliance. Nissan has the alliance with Renault. That's one particular cooperation and then Nissan has um, and Renault also has some specific OEM deals and Nissan has OEM deals with Suzuki, it has them with uh, uh, with Mitsubishi, it has them now with uh, uh, with Chrysler, it doesn't preclude anything you know about you know if you start with an OEM that means you're gonna go further you can stay with OEM deals for a very long time mm-hmm. these deals are signed because the two car manufacturers even though they are competing uh, can find a win-win situation where each one benefits from from the other. And I I can tell you that you're going to see more of it in the future even though car manufacturers are competing against each other, it makes sense to develop a technology together or use a platform together or ask for an OEM deal from a car manufacturer whose economy of scale is not sufficient. And uh, I don't think you should see anything else than specific and limited business discussion on a specific deal that makes sense for both companies.
0: Would you be interested in buying a company like Chrysler?
1: You know, I don't believe in buying. Mm-hmm. Or, or, Th- that's or that's or what I was going I to mean, get you I to talk be, about. I, mean, right. I don't believe in buying. I mean, the, the partnership between Renault and Nissan uh, is a successful one and standing on its feet uh, and uh, still producing a lot of value for two-car manufacturers because it was not a kind of buying. You were not buying anybody. You are partnering with somebody. Mm-hmm. But the cross-shareholding was important because if you want to really do things on the long term and open up the doors and allow engineers and researchers and intellectual property to flow from one company to the other easily you want to eliminate the suspicion that you know your partner of today can become a competitor tomorrow Mm -hmm. you know if if you are in this mindset there is a limit to how much you're going to cooperate by doing the cross shareholding agreement you know that the partner of today is going to always be your your partner even though you have a different identity and a different company but it's a completely different kind of agreement, you know, uh, alliance is one side, OEM are from the other.
0: Mm-hmm. You're still interested in an alliance though in the U.S., are you?
1: We, we still think it makes sense, uh, obviously it has to be a good opportunity, it has to make sense for everybody, it has to be done in a, at a moment where people see it more as an opportunity than a risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, but 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 you know that today we are in a market condition where people see risk everywhere. <laughs> so uh, that's why it's not it's not the very appropriate time to do this kind uh, to, do, to do this kind of move. But you know our strategy didn't change, and my opinion on this didn't change.
0: You sort of made a run, if you will, at trying to form an alliance with General Motors two years ago. It, it didn't go anywhere. But the market conditions have completely changed now any sense that any of the companies in Detroit are more receptive to your idea today?
1: No, I, you know, one of the basic conditions of an alliance to work is the mutual uh, appetite of the two parties. If you have one party who is very interested in an alliance and the other party which absolutely not or neutral or don't see the advantage, you better stop there. I, I, I think, I, I don't believe in anything forced. I don't believe in anything where you have to explain, you know, in an exhaustive manner what are the advantages of a partnership, or you have some needs and you think these needs can be filled by aligning with somebody, or you don't think uh, you don't think so, and then you know it's 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 open. It can it cannot be a, alliance cannot be a constraint. It, mm-hmm. it has to be something that you are. Uh, willing to do where you see the advantage even if from top to time can be hard.
0: You seem to have a lot of patience in that regard because many executives would say no we've got to force these synergies is always the word that you hear and yet you seem to be taking an approach of saying we want everybody to have more independence and figure out how to work together. Do I have that right or no? Well, well you know when, when,
1: we, when we analyze the car industry and you see how much, and this is an analysis which was not done only by us, it was done by outside and renowned re, re consultants. Create, who created value and who destroyed value by going through alliance and mergers and, and acquisition and everything? Well, you have only one case which created value is the Renault-Nissan case. Everything else destroyed value <laughs> and this is, you know, again, an outside consultant tell you this. So, we must be doing something which maybe defies common sense but still delivers a lot of value. Because a lot of people who followed common sense ended up destroying a lot of value. So forcing people in alliance, I never believed into it. From time to time, uh, you know, trying to move fast by imposing your opinion on other people can be very, you can get a short term result, but you're going to pay a high price in the mid and the long term. So you have to have a cautious management where at the same time, you're convincing people about the direction, You obviously encourage them to go into this direction, but uh, let them do it and let them see the benefit and let them imagine new uh, opportunities for this. Forcing, uh, you know, when you're playing on the long term is never a very good solution.
0: Of course you've been, maybe not lucky, but uh, have benefited from the fact that both Nissan and Renault have been very profitable. So maybe that takes some of the pressure off trying to do this more quickly?
1: Well, uh, you know, uh, if Renault and Nissan has been very profitable, it was not a question of luck. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, you can, you I, I can retract the you know, word luck no, Exactly. exactly, yeah. exactly. I, th- I think there is a lot of hard work behind it, and there is a lot of patience, and there is a lot of strategy. Uh, uh, obviously, today, the industry is facing a lot of headwinds, and it's tough for everybody. But what's important is how do you compare your result to somebody else. That, that, that mean That's what is uh, very important. And I, I, I can say that Renault and Nissan are doing... Uh, you know pretty well compared to the rest of the industry,
0: thanks to the lines. Let's go back to commodity prices. We talked about oil, but as you know better than I, the price of everything is exploding these days. Steel, plastics, anything that goes into a car. How do you deal with that? Are, are you able to get enough offsets, or are we seeing car prices about to go up?
1: No, I don't. I don't think. I don't think that you can offset the kind of increases that we are seeing in our industry, particularly when they have been recurrent that I mean we we started to see the steel price just to take an example i don't want to focus only on steel because we That's have the everything. same story with aluminium and plastics and everything but but the steel price you know when you take it it started in 2006 and 2007 and now 2008 and now the prediction is 2009 is going to go up you can't offset this i mean if 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 you spend your time uh, cutting your cost in order to pay your steel bill uh, you know you, you uh, it's like uh, it, it, it's it's a never-ending never and very frustrating kind of effort. There is a moment where you need to exercise some kind of pricing power, uh, because all the industry is facing the same headwinds. Mm-hmm. So everybody needs, in a certain way and in a very measured way, to try to pass part of these price increases to the consumer. We're not talking about tremendous uh, price increase. We're talking about one to two percent price increase in order to rebalance uh, these, uh, these pressure. When price, I mean, the iron ore producers have imposed on China in last month eighty-five percent increase on iron ore. I mean, who's going to pay for this? Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, and this is not the first time. I mean, this is after many years of of increases. Now, I think the industry is is going to remain very competitive, and everybody trying to do the best. But I think there is no solution outside passing, if not all, at least part of this price increase to the consumer and we're seeing it happening in the imperfectly but we're seeing it happening on the market
0: today. Yeah. But you're not going to take it out of your margins, your profit margins, are you?
1: Well you know if you cannot price it on the market you have to take it out of the margin, but take it out of the margin cannot be a policy. Mm-hmm. It can be a short term accommodation until you can explain to the consumer what's going on. But if you if you keep taking it from your margin, your margin is going to disappear because because it's not finished. Yeah.
0: When you say one or two percent that just doesn't sound like enough to offset the increase in the commodity price. Well, you you
1: cannot offset the increase, the past increases. I'm not talking about offsetting everything which happened since 2006. I'm talking about avoiding the situation from now on to get worse for the car industry. We're talking about a couple of percentage point of a price increase. So You're not solving the problem here. You're just avoiding it becoming a drama for everybody.
0: Really good. Mr. Carlos Ghosn, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us. It's been terrific. I've gotten a lesson here in the global automotive industry. Thank you. Carlos Ghosn is quite an interesting executive, and I thought he made some critically important points on today's show. As he made clear, Nissan's going to pursue all kinds of alternative powertrains, but Ghosn wants to put Nissan at the front of the pack when it comes to electric vehicles. He doesn't really seem all that interested in plug-in hybrids or even extended range EVs. He only wants to pursue pure battery power, or what he refers to as zero emission vehicles. He also told me later that Nissan's going to get into the battery business in a big way. And he even wants to sell batteries to other car companies. So we learned quite a bit as to where Mr. Goen wants to take Nissan in the future. By the way, on our website you'll also find that we did an interview with Dominique Thorman, the senior vice president in charge of administration at Nissan North America, and we can even take you on a tour of their impressive new headquarters building. Join me again next week when we take a look at all the new cars that have come out so far this year that are up for the 2009 North American Car of the Year. Well, thanks for tuning in and join us again next week as we give you a front row seat as to what's going on in the automotive industry.